Well, I'd like to um, get us begin get us off here. I'm Rick Herman, and I'd like to welcome all of you to the Mershon Center and to this year's uh, Joseph Krusel lecture. Joe was an important presence at the center. Uh, he served as associate director, acting director. He was a leading figure in our program back then in military affairs. Uh, for ten years, Joe edited the <clears throat> American Defense Annual, and we've put them out on the table in the lobby. It was a book that circulated widely in Washington, had a lot of influence in the defense community. And Joe was also on campus uh, an enormously popular teacher. He won the Distinguished Teaching Award and had a voice, especially on a day like today when I'm struggling with a cold, that all of us could only envy. Uh, I'm glad Gail, uh, Joe's wife, could be here with us today for this annual Cruzel Lecture. <clears throat> Last year we had a Walt Slocum, and so this will be an annual event, I hope. Joe was not only deeply involved at Mershon and on the campus more generally, uh, he was really involved in the leadership of the Democratic Party's foreign policy group, and when President Clinton was elected, uh, Joe left the center to go to Washington, and he was the Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for European Affairs and became quickly involved in both building the new institutions for Europeans security after the wake of the Cold War, particularly the Partnership for Peace, but also became deeply involved in looking for a settlement and ceasefire in Bosnia. Eventually, he uh, died in Bosnia uh, in, 1995, in 1995, 10 years ago, on a mission with Richard Holbrook to try to negotiate a ceasefire in Sarajevo. Joe always wanted the center to do more than just scholarly production. He really hoped we would interact more with the policy community. And I can't think of anyone better to uh, make good on that desire than Elliot Cohen, our speaker today. Uh, like Joe, Professor Cohen earned his Ph.D. at Harvard University, and he is now the Robert E. Osgood Professor of Strategic Studies at the Paul Nitsche School of Advanced <coughs> International Studies at Johns Hopkins University. He's the author of many books, and there's a brochure available on both Joe and Professor Cohen, and I invite you to look at all those books. His most recent one, I think, is called Supreme Command, Soldiers, Statesmen, Statesmen and Wartime Leadership. It won the Huntington Prize for the best book in security studies in 2002, offered by the Olin Institute at Harvard. It's also been reported uh, that it has had enormous influence in the policy community. Uh, like Joe, uh, Professor Cohen has not confined his work entirely to the academy. He's been an active player in the policy world. And if you read James Mann's The Rise of the Vulcans, you'll see him figure prominently, uh, including a report that both President Bush and Vice President Cheney have been spotted carrying Supreme Command around with them. Uh, I suspect they're reading it, or at least we'll hope they're reading it, but nevertheless, they're being photographed or with it. All the cats. Professor Cohen's been on the policy planning staff of the State Department. He's currently a member of the Defense Policy Board and many other positions in Washington. Today, he's going to discuss the difference it makes if a political leader has experience with war and whether prior military experience makes leaders more or less bellicose when they face new decisions. It's a, see, a theme that fits perfectly with the series this year that Jeffrey Parker has put together on the implications and the, of societal decisions to maintain cadres of people who are expert in the conduct of war. And I want to thank Jeffrey Parker particularly for prevailing upon his friend Elliot Cohen to come. I'm sure without Jeffrey's uh, relentless persistence... <laughs> we would not have gotten Professor Cohen to agree, and I would have not been able this afternoon to welcome him here to the Mershon Center. So thank you very much for coming. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Rick. Uh, thanks, uh, Jeffrey, for uh, twisting my arm so effectively. It's, um, you know, it's customary <coughs> on these kinds of occasions to say, well, it's a great honor to be asked to give the... Uh, the Cruzel Lecture, um, and, and I'm sure when people say that sort of thing, they uh, they mean it in an offhand kind of way. Um, but I will tell you that uh, <coughs> uh, 
this uh, means a lot more to me because the guy who introduced me to the field of security studies was Joe Krusel. Uh, I was a sophomore at Harvard, and I took a seminar with him. I think it was called Strategy and Arms Control. In those days, you couldn't have the word strategy without something to, to make it acceptable in polite society, so arms control was slapped on to it. And it was the beginning of a relationship which lasted uh, until, until his, uh, his shocking death. Um, I was a student of his. He, he introduced me to uh, the, the man who became my, my PhD advisor, uh, Sam Huntington. Um, we remained friends all the way through. I contributed to the American Defense Annual. Uh, see him often in the Pentagon. Um, and I just want to, to affirm what, what Rick said. He was a wonderful, wonderful man. And I, you know, I, I think about him often. Um, and I guess what I, what I sometimes think is, uh, you know, academics uh, strive for uh, immortality usually in what they write, which, of course, is hope. I mean, immortality is hopeless. Uh, and that's, that's not the way the good Lord wanted it. Um, but, but we try nonetheless. And we usually try for it or we think we're going to get it in the books that we write. Um, and I think that's wrong. And insofar as one gets it, you get it by um, the teaching that you do, the friendship that you extend, uh, the people who think of you the way I think of Joe Krusel, uh right now. And uh, his, it's an influence that, that's going to last uh, well beyond his, his really untimely, untimely passing. So it, it is a great honor, and Gail, it's a delight to have you here um, for this occasion. Well, let me uh, let me plunge in the the, uh, the brutal title for the lecture that that Jeffrey uh, has made me give is is armchair killers, um, which is a very uncomfortable term. He's there's a, as I suppose most of you know the course that he's offering uses the word killers an awful lot, a- and I think he's doing us a service by rubbing our noses in that fact that that's what war is very much about. Um, and he's forcing us, and in particular forcing me, uh, to, to talk about what he calls armchair killers, the political leaders who make the decisions to send men and now women off to kill or to be killed. Uh, now, yeah, that's, this is obviously a huge topic, and what I want to try to do is to narrow it down a bit, and I'm going to do that in a number of ways. But first, I want to make some preliminary observations. As Rick said, what I, what I will be trying to do is to, uh, the, the slice that I wanted to take at this was looking at military service and political leadership. Because there is in that word armchair, a, of course, an epithet. Um, there's a, you know, the, not, not an implication, it's, uh, it's pretty overt that you're talking about people who are themselves at comfort and are sending other people into harm's way. So let me make a first number of uh, um, observations. The the first, probably the most important observation, is this is an issue which is extraordinarily easily manipulated and exploited. And and particularly at a time like this one, when this uh, country is engaged in a war which is deeply controversial, where the prior service record of the president and the vice president, many of the people around him, is a matter of political debate. Uh, And I'm sure, as many of you will recall, in the run-up to this war, um, there was a fair amount of the use of the word chicken hawk. There was indeed a, uh, I believe there was a website run out of New Hampshire, which purported to list all the chicken hawks in the administration and what they had been doing instead of serving uh, serving the country um, uh, in uniform. In fact, I was briefly on it until I got in touch with the uh, the guy who was running the website and said, A, I'm not in the administration, and B, I was in the Army, so take me off the damn thing, <laughs> uh, which he, he, to his credit, did. But, but you know, in, in the same way that Alfred North Whitehead said, uh, wherever I go somewhere in philosophy, I meet Plato coming back. Well, wherever one goes in the study of war, one meets Clausewitz coming back. And one of the things Clausewitz pointed out to us at the very beginning of on war is uh, that since war is an act of violence, the emotions are involved, and you better be aware of that. And that's true for all of us as citizens. It's particularly going to be true for us if any of us are soldiers or who have kids who are soldiers, um, which also happens to be my 
uh, my circumstance these days. So I, I raise all this just to, to make us aware of that and to, uh, to suggest that it takes a real effort, an effort I'm not sure that I'm always successful in making, in damping that down and controlling for it and trying to step back and talk about these things uh, without letting partisan animus or personal emotion carry us away. The second preliminary observation I'd make is the very notion of military service is a problematic one. Uh, there are many, many different jobs in the military. Uh, and indeed, frequently in, in their ignorance, it seems to me, civilians fail to grasp that the distinction between different kinds of military service are often far greater than that between service and no service. Um, I think students of the military quickly realize there are hierarchies within hierarchies. Uh, it's not only the case that the infantry officer looks a little bit skeptically at the guy whose main job is sitting in a missile silo getting ready to turn the keys and punch in the numbers that will uh, launch Armageddon. It's that even within one clan of one tribe, the uh, infantry officer will be looking for those telltale signs, the combat patch on the shoulder, the uh, combat infantryman's badge, uh, maybe the ranger tab, the bronze star with V device, and so on. Uh, and those distinctions are sometimes as large or larger than um, the distinctions between having served and not, not having served. It, it's also, of course, the case that um, for us, I think, uh, particularly for academics, there's a, there's a further problem in thinking about politicians in wartime. Uh, and that is that we are, as people, even further from those kinds of folks than we are from soldiers. And it's a particular problem for many, I wouldn't say all, but for many military historians or political scientists, most of whom deep down have some feelings that they're engaged in a somewhat ghoulish set of investigations and have a um, somewhat suspect set of interests in violence, particularly if they haven't experienced it themselves. And even those who have seen common don't combat um, and know war firsthand don't always necessarily transcend it. I've, I have heard eloquent lectures about the Italian military during World War II delivered by a middle-aged professor when what I was really hearing was a young man's anguish about what he saw in Vietnam. But beyond this, I think most of us are really not very well equipped to get inside the heads and the hearts of political leaders. Uh, you could take most average undergraduates or graduate students at an elite institution like this, and you could probably turn them into passable second lieutenants. Uh, you probably could not turn them into passable politicians, and in fact, most academics really make particularly awful kinds of politicians failing to master the most elementary skills such as counting votes. And uh, I think anybody who's been in a departmental meeting uh, is always struck by how otherwise highly intelligent people seem to have lost the ability to understand arithmetic uh, and are stunned when their, their position loses out. Um, this actually, I think, is a much larger problem than, than we sometimes admit to ourselves. Uh, and again, I think it's a caution. We need to, to, in some ways, turn to the skills more of a novelist um, than, than perhaps of a social scientist, unless, unless he or she be a psychologist, to, to try to figure out why politicians think and do the things that we do. And we should always be aware of the fact that, let's face it, most of us couldn't be elected uh, dog catcher. Now, having issued this, uh, those uh, warnings, let me try to further limit the topic a bit. Uh, I'm mainly going to talk about democracies and democratic political leaders. Um, and that's just to make the, the, uh, the topic I've given, been given a little bit uh, easier to manage. But, but in any case, I, I think it's pretty clear that there are plenty of bloody-minded dictators who have had military service and plenty who, who haven't. I mean, if you were to... Is there much to choose between a Hitler and Stalin in terms of their predilections for using force... Uh, based on their prior military service. After all, Hitler was a corporal in the trenches, uh, decorated, uh, deserved it, as far as we can tell, uh, knew what an unpleasant thing war was. That certainly didn't stop him from launching perhaps the greatest war the world has ever known. Stalin did not serve in the Russian army, and that, that does not seem to have 
diminished his, his taste for blood uh, either. Um, and within the issue of democratic civil-military relations, I'm not going to, to talk about a subject which is, I think, amenable to research, and there has been done good work done on it by people like Peter Fever and others, about veterans' attitudes towards the use of force and so on. This is, a, this is the kind of thing which can be studied by uh, various kinds of surveys, and although there are lots of problems associated with generalizing across time on those matters, um, that's a different set of issues. So let me, let me plunge in to this issue of military service and political, political leaders. The, I think the, the first thing one has to say is it's very clear, I think, from the record that there have been plenty of thoughtful, effective wartime leaders who've had no military experience whatsoever or the most minimal kinds of, uh, um, of military experience. The, of course, the great example for all Americans is Abraham Lincoln, who had a grand total of about 30 days service in the Black Hawk War, um, which he himself described in later life in you know, really faintly comic tones as, as when he brought his platoon up to a uh, fence, forgot the words for, uh, to get them to execute a column left, uh, column, uh, column right and column left again so they could get through a, a, um, a gap in the fence. So he just said, fall out and fall in on the other side of the fence. <laughs> Which is not a proof of military procedure, as I can, I can see the, uh, the, the, some of the officers present shaking their heads. Um, but if you were to ask who is the more effective wartime leader, Abraham Lincoln or Jefferson Davis, a man who, after all, had served as a colonel uh, in the Mexican War, uh, who had been a professional soldier, who had been uh, Secretary of War, and on the whole, a pretty effective Secretary of War, and who had uh, chaired the Senate Military Affairs Committee. I think most Civil War historians would say, no question about it, Abraham Lincoln was a much better war leader and was also probably a somewhat less bellicose figure, although he was certainly willing, willing to wage war. Uh, among America's wartime presidents, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, also a man without any wartime experience, uh, without any, I should say without any military service. He'd been Assistant Secretary of the Navy during World War I, um, a very capable leader. George Clemenceau, perhaps my, uh, my favorite figure, um, who, who led France in an extraordinarily difficult time at the very end of the First World War. Um, he had experienced plenty of violence. He was a very good duelist. Uh, uh, and he seems to have enjoyed that, but he was, not, he was not a soldier. So it's pretty clear that military experience does not necessarily correlate with successful wartime leadership. Uh, it's also not... I think entirely clear that it leads to more sensitivity to casualties or a higher regard for peace. Um, and of course, one would also have to point out that the highest possible regard for peace is not always a virtue. Just think of the America Firsters uh, before before World War II. I mean, for example, in the current circumstance, I have friends who are. Um, veterans of several tours in Vietnam, some of whom were very much in favor of the Gulf War, this, the Second War with Iraq, and some of whom were dead set against it. And it wasn't clear to me that their military service had any impact whatsoever on, on their position. In any case, our problem is really much more that of the assessment of individuals rather than of, of collective groups. One way into this topic, I think, is to begin thinking about the difference uh, between political leaders and military <sighs> leaders. What makes them different? Uh, and then to talk about how military service colors the uh, uh, colors a statesman's worldview or how it might. Uh, the best description I know of this is in a very short book that was written by Charles de Gaulle I think it was translated into English in the early 30s, and he wrote it around 1930. It's called The Edge of the Sword, Le Fille de l'Epée. And it's a short, but really, to my mind, quite profound book about civil-military relations. Uh, and in it, he has a, an extended description, I'm going to read several paragraphs of this, of the difference between political leaders and, uh, and generals. It is the task of political leaders to dominate opinion. The statesman, therefore must concentrate all his efforts on captivating men's minds. He must know when to dissemble and when to be frank. He must pose as the servant of the public in order to become its master. He must outbid his rivals in self-confidence. And only after a thousand intrigues and solemn undertakings will he find himself entrusted with full power. 
Even when he has it in his grasp, he can never be completely open in his dealings, for he must still be concerned to please, to know how to convince prince or parliament, how to gratify popular passions and soothe the anxieties of vested interests. His authority, no matter how unquestioned, is precarious. Great or small, historic figure or colorless politician, he comes and goes between power and powerlessness, between prestige and public ingratitude. The whole of his life and the sum total of his work are marked by instability, restlessness, and storm, and so are very different from those of the soldier. The soldier's profession is that of arms, but the power they give him has to be strictly organized. From the moment that he embarks upon it, he becomes slave to a body of regulations and so remains all through his active life. The army is generous, but jealous. It guides his steps, supports him in his moments of weakness, develops such gifts as he may have, but it also keeps a tight hold on him, overriding his doubts and holding his enthusiasm in check. As a man, he suffers much from its demands, for he must renounce his personal liberty, his chances of making money, and sometimes sacrifice his life, and what greater offering could there be? But at this high cost, it opens the door for him to the empire of armed might. In the company of his fellows, he rises to a position of power, but by degrees, for the hierarchy of which he is a member is strict and uncompromising. For the soldier, there is always yet some higher rank to attain, some further recognition to be gained. On the other hand, such authority as he may wield is absolute. Supported by discipline, and strengthened by tradition, it makes use of everything in the way of credit and prestige which the military order gives to him who holds command. The statesman and the soldier bring, therefore, to a common task very different characters, methods, and anxieties. The former reaches his goal by roundabout ways, the latter by direct approach. The one is long-sighted, though his vision may be clouded, sees realities as complex, and sets himself to master them by trickery and calculation. The other sees with clear eyes what there is to be seen straight in front of his nose and thinks it simple and capable of being controlled by resolution. In dealing with immediate problems, the statesman's first concern is what people will say of him. The soldier looks for counsel to his principles. Well, um, you know, you might say this is a particular man's take on the French army circa 1930, and that there might be some truth to that. Uh, and it's clear that there are people who are capable of, of both kinds of life. Uh, de Gaulle himself, obviously, is the, is the best example. He was, he was a successful soldier and certainly was a successful politician, although you could argue that in both cases his, uh, uh, his career was abruptly, abruptly ended. But there are others, and Eisenhower, for example. But still, I think there is a, a central point which is absolutely true here, that um, civil-military relations isn't just about legal matters. It's not just about constitutional issues. It's not simply organizational. Uh, it's not even simply about the different kinds of responsibilities that people have. Rather, sol soldiers and politicians are fundamentally very, by and large, there are always being exceptions, but they are fundamentally very different kinds of people. They've had very different life experiences. They have very different aptitudes. And above all, they've had a profoundly different set of socializing experiences. And that fundamental, fundamental difference explains much. So how does uh, military experience then affect a, a wartime leader? Well, it's very clear that um, politicians, by and large, do want to have some military service on their resume, or if they have it, they will make the most of it. Now, my, my central piece of evidence for this is luckily provided by a son of Ohio, if you go, as you should go, uh, to the battlefield of Antietam, what our southern colleagues may call uh, Sharpsburg, uh, you can go to the what's probably the, uh, the most beautiful spot in any Civil War battlefield, Burnside's Bridge, named after uh, Ambrose Burnside, a uh, Union general who on a number of occasions faced a uh, rather simple tactical kind of problem and unfortunately chose to address it in the most simple tactical way, that is by repeated frontal assaults, uh, which is how the bridge got, got the name uh, Burnside's, Burnside's Bridge. This was not unfortunately the first nor was it the last time that he, he took this approach to these kinds of problems. Well, in any case, as you wander your way down to um, uh, Burnside's Bridge, you'll see a little monument. And I, I always take people to that little monument. Most of the monuments are to different units and so on. There's a little monument, though, 
the inscription of which reads as follows. William McKinley, January 29th, 1843 to September 14th, 1901, 14 years member of Congress, twice governor of Ohio, 1892 to 93 and 94 to 95, twice president of the United States, 1897 to 1901. Sergeant McKinley, Colonel E, 23rd Ohio Volunteer Infantry, while in charge of the commissary department, on the afternoon of the day of the Battle of Antietam, September 17th, 1862, personally and without orders, served hot coffee and warm food to every man in the regiment on this spot, and in doing so had to pass under fire. Well, now, normally, this <laughs> a, a, a sergeant in the commissary department providing hot coffee to the troops would not be considered a notable military accomplishment, but... But if you want to be president of the United States, uh, you might want to emphasize that, particularly if bullets were whizzing by somewhere within the general vicinity of... of your, actually, the, the monument is in a re- hollow, and you can see that the ball, bullets may have been whizzing 20 feet over his head, but he was in no imminent danger. But in any case. Um, so it, it, it is clear, you know, you think about, say, John F. Kennedy, PT-109, and all the rest. If, if politicians have some kind of military record... They will make the most of it. Um, they will go out of their way to acquire at least some of it uh, if they're already thinking that way. The, uh, those of you who haven't already done so, you should read the magnificent biography of Lyndon Johnson by Robert Caro. Uh, it takes a little bit of patience but uh, since it's, it's rather long. But you know, one of the things that's very striking about Johnson is he, he realizes he, he needs to get you know, some smidgen of military experience during World War II uh, and would be kind of it's it's a typical Johnson story, but he flew on one mission uh, in which he in which he got shot at. But at least he could say, you know, I was there and uh, I, I faced enemy fire. Uh, so it's pretty it's pretty clear that that's um, that's something that's appealing. People like Kennedy, or for that matter, Harry Truman, who had much more serious kinds of military experience. Uh, this was this was important, I think, not only for their political biography, in the case of somebody like Truman, it, it molded his character, although I think it molded his character in ways that really go beyond his political self in terms of his, his self-confidence about who he was. The, the larger point, though, is in many, though not all, democracies, um, high rank during a war makes you at least conceivably a candidate for office. And certainly if you look at our own history, there are lots of generals uh, there are a number of generals who've become presidents, and there's certainly a much larger number of generals who want to become president or toy with the idea. Now, what's interesting in this is that, by and large, most generals make really lousy politicians. And um, uh, it's interesting thinking about why that's, why that's the case. Uh, part of it, I think, is that they are really unused to the cut and thrust cut and thrust of democratic politics. I mean, if we think about two recently prominent American generals, Wesley Clark and Colin Powell, Powell having had the good sense not to run for president, I think, uh, Wesley Clark having had the poor sense to do so, you'll see that the, many of the, the um, I think many of the attributes and qualities that they took from military life really unsuited to the world of politics. Uh, starting with a very basic fact, by and large, general officers, particularly general officers in wartime, are not used to being contradicted by people for whom they don't have much respect who are off to the side. And um, they're used to being able to control their own access to journalists, for example. Um, They usually don't have to deal with uh, the kind of incessant attacks, which are a normal feature of democratic politics. And they find it wounding. And I think to, to his credit... Powell very quickly figured out that it would drive him mad if he had to experience that as as he would have. The uh, in the United States, of course, um, uh, being a very complicated country, uh, sometimes generals have been successful, other times not. But by and large, I think there is something of a, of a prejudice against them in politics, except recently. Th- there's another democracy which is an interesting case, and that's uh, the Israelis. Um, where there are a lot of generals who've gone into politics. What's interesting there, too, is how many of them have been real flameouts in terms of being able to manage a very competitive and uh, often rather brutal political system. 
So uh, it, it's clear that uh, a military record of some kind, however modest, uh, is marginally useful to politicians in democratic societies. Uh, but the highest level military experience certainly doesn't help them get elected. Whether it would make them good war leaders or not is, is not clear. And again, the, the only cases that we really have that are, I think, well, the most interesting cases I think that we have are, are the Israeli cases, Yitzhak Rabin and Ariel Sharon. And even their record, I think, as wartime leaders is, is in many ways mixed. Well, does military service help a political leader cross the cultural divide which um, Charles de Gaulle was talking about. Can you argue that if a political leader has some kind of military experience, at least he'll be able to understand um, the generals, and, and perhaps the generals will feel more rapport with him for um, having uh, uh, experienced some of the same kinds of things that they have? And I think here, too, the answer is not really. Not really. The main reason is that usually a, a democratic politician is somebody who leveled out as a pretty junior officer. Now, again, you have some uh, exceptions from the post-Civil War period in the United States. We had some people who um, had become general officers, although very, very quickly, who went into politics. But in any case, they were not wartime, wartime presidents. Um, but the Harry Trumans of this world finish up as a captain or something like that. And the world looks very different to a, a captain in the army or a lieutenant JG in the navy than it does to generals or admirals. And if you are uh, a president, that's who you're going to be dealing with, generals and admirals. In some ways, actually, it may even make the problem worse. Think about uh, Truman's suspicions of uh, the United States Marine Corps, which were quite deep, um, which seem in part to have gone back to his World War I experience. Um, the fact of the matter is, by and large, junior officers tend to be much more mistrustful of people at the top, uh, even sometimes, than civilians are. Nor, nor is it clear that respect for that sort of military service is always, or indeed often, reciprocated. Generals are very rarely impressed by captains, even if we think they ought to be. Of the great uh, democratic war leaders, uh, Winston Churchill is undoubtedly the greatest, he actually had pretty extensive military service, if you think about it. He'd been a junior officer serving in, uh, uh, in India. Uh, he'd been a war correspondent who had been right at the front in the Boer War. Uh, he'd been in the Sudan. Um, he had seen war both at the front. He had uh, covered the, uh, the generals. Uh, he actually performs quite well in the, his about six months or so in the trenches in the First World War. None of his generals really gave him credit for that. In fact, I think most of them felt that it made him more of a menace than, than anything else. Many of them felt that his ideas of war were outmoded. Uh, as a result, that he had romantic notions of combat, which, by the way, I think were, were, was untrue and, uh, and unfair. Uh, and for those of you in the seminar, you will have read the, uh, uh, the chapter in uh, Martin Gilbert's very interesting reflections on, on Churchill. Uh, in search of Churchill, in which he, he gives, I think, a much truer account of Churchill's, Churchill's view of war. Uh, but from everything that I've discovered and I've read a lot, it's pretty clear that Churchill did not get any particular credit uh, from the generals that he dealt with based on his own, his own military experience. Well, does military experience, is military experience of some, some kind conducive to better judgment? better military judgment. Um, and I'm not sure that I think the answer to that is yes either. Does, do you need to have served in the military to know that war is a terrible thing? Well, then the issue would not be just serving in the military, it would be serving in combat. Possibly. Possibly, although I think most people understand that combat's a terrible thing without being in it. Uh, it's also the case, by the way, that there are those who enjoy combat and come away with both a certain kind of exhilaration from it uh, as well as a horror of it. And that also, by the way, was true of Churchill. Churchill, remember, is the man who wrote in his memoir, My Early Life, that there's nothing so exhilarating as being shot at without result. So it's not clear that 
certain kinds of combat experiences, and there are many different kinds of combat experiences out there that people have, uh, gives you an aversion to it. But in any case, do you know that the, do you need to know um, from military service that war is a terrible thing? I don't. I I don't really think so. Does it give you specific military knowledge? Well, that's pretty clearly untrue as well. I mean, almost by definition, the kind of military experience that somebody had as a junior officer 20, 25 years ago uh, is probably not very relevant to the tools of war today. Does it at least give you an instinct of what to look for and where you want to question? I don't think so either. If, if it were, it would make sense before you went off to war to have a council of war composed of, of sergeants and uh, chief petty officers. Um, but in fact, a war council of sergeants would probably be one of the worst set of strategic thinkers one can imagine because that isn't the level at which they're thinking and they're operating. Well, as you can probably tell, uh, what do I come away from this thinking? What I come away from this thinking is that the connection between military service and either one's proclivity to engage in war or one's skill at being a wartime political leader, um, that connection is pretty weak, that there there are undoubtedly some political leaders for whom this was important and formative in certain ways. Uh, But it's very hard to generalize about that, and by and large... I would tend to say the connection is not, does not appear to me to be that so that strong. Well, if that's the case, why is this issue so much with us? Uh, and it wasn't just in the run-up to the first to the, the the most recent Gulf War. It's an issue that does periodically crop up. And I think there are two reasons for that, and that's what I want to finish this lecture uh, with. The first has to do with the peculiar significance of the Vietnam War in the American experience and the lingering effects of the Vietnam War on the American, uh, on American civil-military relations. Um, I was a teenager at the time, but I must say I'm struck by how much the poisons that that war brewed are still with us. And you have only to look at Powell's memoir, which is in some ways, I think, unintentionally revealing, to, to realize how deep the consequences of Vietnam were. After all, in some ways, the question that we're dealing with is age old. Uh, there's that famous British World War I recruiting poster from the first part of the war when the British were on an all-volunteer system with a uh, little girl looking at her father smoking his pipe in a uh, uh, lounge chair saying, what did you do during the war, Daddy? And people, people were and are anxious about the answer to that question. Um, but I think Vietnam has made that a particularly bitter kind of question. And it's no coincidence that these issues, I think, have been uh, most most painful and most prominent in our history, as far as I can tell, with the Vietnam generation. Because it is, by and large, true that you have a generation of political leaders um, on both sides of the aisle, both Democrats and Republicans, who, by and large, did not serve in in that war, or who served in ways which were pretty clearly designed to shield them from actually going over and engaging in combat, um, for example, by serving in the National, the, the national Guard, um, although one would also say by enlisting in the United States Navy, as, as one friend of mine once said, uh, I was very well aware that there were no Viet Cong submarines out there. <laughs> Now, now, what's interesting about that, too, is, again, if we, if we detach ourselves from our, our emotional reactions to this and we ask ourselves, why did this happen? Um, it is not the case because this was a generation of particularly um, contemptible uh, or risk-averse or unpatriotic or completely selfish young men. Uh, It has much more to do with the way a conscription system functioned. And I'll just give you a very brief excursion of that because I think it's worth reminding ourselves of this. During the the key parts of the Vietnam War, the United States operated under what was called selective service. Now, we've forgotten what selective service came from. Selective service was the system of conscription which was adopted for the First World War uh, based in part on the report of the Provost Marshal from the Civil War um, which tried to square a circle. The circle that it was trying to square was 
a desire to use manpower scientifically, that is to say, understanding that we're engaged in total war in which wartime production at home was tremendously important, as well as creating a large mass army. That was one set of needs. Um, And the other set of needs had to do with trying to maintain a system of military service that would be consonant with American political traditions and with American political culture. The solution was selective service, where young men would register and they would appear before local selective service boards, small groups of neighbors was the, the phrase from the First World War, who would make decisions about, who would have certain quotas that they would have to fill, but they would make decisions about whether a young man was really serving the country better by continuing to work on the farm or work in some factory which was engaged in war production uh, or who maybe had some compassionate reason for being left at home while some other person went. That system cranked on, of course, there's no draft in the interwar period, but it cranked on in World War II where it served a similar function, and then it was continued in a world that was utterly different, where we had way, way too many men, and, and in fact, one of the problems during Vietnam actually was that the draft pool of young men was growing, it wasn't shrinking. Uh, in any case, it was a limited war that we were fighting where wartime mobilization didn't, what was not really an issue, but you still had a system of exemptions and uh, uh, loopholes which were basically had been handed down from World War I. And, and there was the functioning of this system which made it easy and tempted young men to gain the system and to work their way around military service. Um, and end of excursion. The point is, I think, that Vietnam hangs as a shadow over an entire generation of political leaders. And I suspect many of these issues... Um, will persist as long as the Vietnam generation is is politically influential. Th- there are some who have transcended their own personal feelings on this score. John McCain, actually, I think it's, um, has been truly exceptional in this respect, but he's unusual. But just to remind you, this was not... Um, the, the, the level of attention that this issue has gotten is, is very unusual. If we take, for example, the man after whom my school is named, Paul Nitze, who was a very, very prominent... Uh, defense official and national secure voice in national security, who was of an age to be drafted in World War II. He was 30, but who did not serve, was in very civilian capacities and then was running the strategic bombing survey. That did not affect his career at all, and in fact, nobody brought up the fact that he had not served in, uh, even though he was a very, very physically fit young man, that he hadn't served in uniform overseas during the Second World War. So um, that's, I think, the first thing. Vietnam and the shadow that Vietnam casts and still casts, I'm, I'm afraid, over, um, over the way we view this issue. But I think there's a deeper reason why we, we, we raise the issue of uh, military service and political leadership. And that is because it has, for a very long time, indeed in many ways always, been the case that military service acts as a surrogate for a measure of character. Samuel Johnson, I think, once said, every man thinks worse of himself for not having been a soldier. I think the real heart of this matter is that military service is often and appropriately associated with character, with patriotism, with self-sacrifice, with courage, uh, with coolness, with judgment. Even when it's actually, and sometimes, much more complicated complicated than that. Those of you who are in the seminar will have read uh, Abraham Lincoln's amazing opinion on the draft where he's explaining why it is that people enlist. He says, well, that people enlist for a variety of reasons, patriotism, political bias, ambition, personal courage, love of adventure, want of employment, and convenience, or the opposites of some of these. <laughs> it's a, it's a, uh, a marvelously and typically Lincolnian utterly unillusioned view of the human condition and of what motivates people to do things. But very few of us have the detachment of a Lincoln. Honorable military service, particularly honorable military service in combat, acts, I think, as a surrogate for some broader judgments. Um, Now, some people don't need that. Nobody, I think, doubted the patriotism 
or the courage or the steadfastness of a George Clemenceau. But that was, I think, because of the nature of his personality uh, and because of his record. There are, on the other hand, um, pathetic characters who, because they feel the need of that prop, will make up stories. And uh, every now and then you'll see a story in the press of somebody making up a completely fictitious combat record for themselves as they run for office. Or you think of uh, someone like Joe McCarthy, for example, who uh, appropriated for himself the uh, nickname Tailgunner Joe when he had actually been a debriefing officer for uh, pilots in, in the Pacific. And all this matters because warfare is, at the top, as almost as much as it is at, at the bottom, partly an affair of the intellect and of organizational ability, but very largely also an affair of character. The ability to keep balanced, to endure terrible strains, to retain, as long as we're speaking about liberal democracies, some sort of core of humanity, while at the same time making awful, awful kinds of um, of decisions. It is in many respects like being a general, but I would argue in, in many ways also much worse. Uh, and what that means is that in the end, the issue is not the politician as the armchair color, killer, but us. You there sitting in all those armchairs. If the title that I was given is right, uh, armchair killers, then all of us I would suggest, are as much members of that group as any benighted politician trying to figure out how to do his best in wartime. That concludes my remarks. Be happy to take any questions or comments you might have. Why don't I let you uh, handle questions yourself? Uh, thank you. I've been known to do it before. Ted. Um, look, here's my basic feeling about Vietnam. Most people are idiots when they're 18, 19, or 20. And I'm not going to make my final judgment about their character or their moral judgment at that age. I, I will reserve my judgments for the people who create the system that sets up certain incentives for them to behave in various ways. Uh, I reserve my judgments for the people who conduct the war, who get you into it, um, for the generals and, of course, for the for the politicians who are ultimately responsible. Um, I, I think, and I, I've thought, and I continue to think that um, it, it's insane to pass judgment on 50-year-old men for what they were like as kids 30 years ago. I mean, it just it just doesn't, or less in some cases. It just seems to me to make no sense whatsoever. I mean, if you know, if you did that, then you'd have to say Gordon Brown is completely unfit. To, we'll take a, a non-American example. Utterly unfit to be the Prime Minister of Great Britain because as a college student, he advocated nationalizing everything. Right? Well, you know, okay, he was a kid. And, you know said something that was pretty stupid, and he presumably doesn't believe it anymore. And yes, that was very bad judgment on his part, but that's why you report the sophomore tutorial. Um, uh, so I, and I'm, I'm going to, I mean, I'm happy to engage you on that, whether one should make a judgment about those sorts of things. Um, I'll just say one more thing about that, though. That doesn't, it doesn't detract from the positive judgment that I would make about somebody who uh, made an affirmative decision to go even if they could get out. And that does tell you something. If somebody can make that decision as a young man of 19, that tells you something. But, you know, Lincoln is right about people's motivation to serve. Um, and, you know, I know lots of young people who've volunteered to serve in the American military, and there's a wide range of motivations from the most noble to the most ludicrous. Yeah, Alan. I wonder if part of the, the issue is the expectation on part of military people that the president has had some military service 
within business or follow the processes with which they're more comfortable than would otherwise be the case. The expectation would be fulfilled if you like the Eisenhower, the president of right. business, the way he had done business in the Army, and in fact, he did. But he also came up with lots of decisions in the military. Right. It was, <laughs> I was going to say, man, if we could drag Matthew Ridgeway out of the grave. But the thing that strikes me is that the thing that really gets the senior officers of the Pentagon is Well, a couple things. You know, first thing, uh, Eisenhower was unusual in that he, after all, had been a, um, you know, he'd, he'd run the invasion of Europe uh, and the liberation of the continent. So he, that's the case of the general who becomes uh, president. And as you know, some of those are, he, he on the whole, I think we now say was, was pretty successful. Um, you know, you look at, I know, Ulysses S. Grant, you say we, he was actually probably not that successful. Uh, even though he had a comparable kind of experience for his time in kind of organizational managerial ways. But, but, but you know, I mean, let's think for a moment. Do, do we think that the only orderly people on the planet are those who have served in the military? No, of course not. Of course not. You can have a perfectly orderly staff process without anybody having served for a day in the military. Um, I think th they are baffled frequently by the chaos, but that's partly because they're baffled by politics. Um, you know, there are reasons why politicians don't come out with elaborately staffed things. You know, it's like Roosevelt throwing out these wild uh, production goals without consulting anybody. Well, that was partly Roosevelt's way was, I mean, he, he thought the way you motivate bureaucracies for which he had profound suspicion, as most politicians, I think, do, and, and whereas military people are very much the product of bureaucracies, was, well, what you do is you throw out these reach goals, as we now call them, and they will at least shake up the system and get it, get it, to, um, get it, get it to produce. So the, I, I think that's what, they are really, that's what they are really reacting against. They, they react, um, it's true they react against disorder, but in that sense, what they're frequently doing is just reacting against, you know, the nature of political life. Yeah, back on the wall. Yeah, um, on the last point about why on this particular hang-up in the United States, I'm curious if sort of maybe a, a, another explanation or sort of an alternative would be the, the politicization of the military or more particularly the politicization of military values or symbols. In the United States, the politicians in the United States feel compelled to speak in front of soldiers. They speak with the flags, the aircraft carriers, you know, Michael Cockney's going to prove himself by getting in a tank, you know, that sort of thing. I mean, I lived in Europe and I worked in Europe for about three or four years, particularly in Germany, and no one ever did that sort of stuff. Right? I mean, in Germany, you did not have to prove yourself by going and speaking to the Bundeswehr. If you did, then suddenly you were a school. Yeah. Germany in particular. Yeah, well, they, they have a somewhat painful set of experiences that they're coupled with. Right, I mean, during a sort of separate example. But I mean, in principle, I mean, what I'm suggesting, I guess what I'm suggesting is that Americans need a particular hang-up with the military. Right, maybe that's sort of a byproduct of being a super union warrior ethos or something like that. But it seems to me, particularly the Republican Party has politicized, I used to work for Republicans too, and they've got in about the flag and the military values and veterans. I mean, this really activated Republican voters. And I don't, I'm not sure if I fully agree with, with, with the Vietnam explanation. I think that the military is a particularly powerful and useful symbol and instrument for, for, for politicians that has made the selection process for whether or not you serve a very critical issue, particularly for the GOP. I, um, well, I, I think it's, th this is, you know, it's funny because in a way we think of ourselves as a uh, fairly, you know, peaceful, you know, highly civilianized country and we always looked at, you know, say Germany, under the Kaiser is a highly militarized country. The, f the fact is the military has always loomed very, very large in American history. Our, our history is very largely shaped by all kinds of military history. Many of our heroes are military, although the, the kinds of people, the kinds of generals we like uh, tend to be much more people who we can at least interpret to ourselves as citizen soldiers, even if they're not. You know, we like Ike 
we don't, and the whole point was you can like Ike. Uh, nobody liked Douglas MacArthur. Uh, you know, uh, much more likely to want to mug Doug than to like Ike. Um, I, I, I think both sides, bo- I, 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 my, my view, and for what it's worth, I don't belong to either party. Um, uh, I think both sides actually have been pretty irresponsible in using military symbols. I mean, it was, Clinton was the first guy to try out a whole bunch of generals to endorse him as president, and I think because of his Vietnam record. Uh, this has become a, a, this is recently retired generals. This is a disease now. And the general officers, retired general officers are complicit in it. Uh, it's destructive. Um, the good news is that I think most of the active duty general officers hate it uh, and are, are bitterly opposed to it. I've, I've, I know, I've talked to a lot of them. Uh, but because retired general officers don't criticize other retired general officers, they don't say anything publicly saying this is really off limits. You shouldn't be doing this, Tony or, um, um, or, or anybody else. Uh, by the way, again, there you already have a norm. Th- think of, imagine a world in which politicians made a point of not criticizing one another. You know, it's that they're in a different world. Retire- general officers don't criticize one another in public. They may be catty in private, but, uh, but that's, a, that's a different matter. And so I think you're right. I mean, you now have a situation in which both parties do this pretty shamelessly. And unfortunately, there are general officers who go along. I mean, um, Again, I tend to think some of this will will diminish as the Viet as Vietnam goes away, um, and so it's not simply that you know Americans are a bunch of of militarists. It's you know a Bill Clinton has a particular kind of problem, a George W. Bush has a particular kind of problem, John Kerry has a different kind of problem. Once you get beyond that. It won't matter. What, what will be interesting, by the way, I would venture to predict, is you will get a, I believe, out of the current generation of um, younger officers, you're going to get another generation of politicians. They're, we have sent a lot of people through Iraq, and a lot of those people are going to get out of the military, and some of them will be politically inclined, and they will run for office, and they will their military records will be, will be part of it. It will be interesting to see whether there will be an identifiable group of Iraq and some Afghan veterans who will become a sort of a noticeable political uh, political group. Yeah? Um, I have two questions. First, uh, following this uh, militarization of American politics, I remember Ronald Reagan started the president's salute whenever he stepped down from Air, Air Force One or helicopter. I mean, almost everyone behind him, Clinton and others, you know, continues. And the second question is, uh, Michael Doyle made a point uh, about uh, democracy peace theory, that democracy is peaceful because every citizen has a stake in his nation's foreign defense policy. That's in his early mm-hmm. uh, kind of, uh, article. Uh, this goes to the question about the draft system. Without the draft system today, with the professional military, and also with kind of like trying to privatize mm-hmm. the military service or logistics, what do you think of the decision-making um, by Supreme Commander, like President, when they make decisions to go to war, it does not have to face the societal impact on the military. <laughs> so what's the difference between a professional sure. and uh, a, you know, a draft system? Well, a couple things. First, you know, I think with Ronald Reagan, uh, uh, he, he's, he served in the military during World War II, really through no, no fault of his own. He ended up being stateside making movies, but... Um, his military service meant a lot to him, and I think you know if you've been in the army for five years, uh, you know, and you're getting off an airplane, and you see a you know crisply uniformed marines going like that, your natural instinct, you know, you'd have to stop your hand like that, is to return the salute. I mean, that's just that, that actually is a way in which junior military service as a junior officer conditions you. It's, yeah, it gets a little bit like Dr. Strangelove. But, but your instinct, you're, you're, I mean, I know if, if, I, if I had a whole bunch of military guys show up suddenly and, you know, I don't know why they'd be saluting professors, but if, <laughs> if, that, if, that, salutary practice was in, if that salutary practice was introduced, I would, I, I, would pro- I would probably return the salute. It's a form of courtesy. Nixon was a different kind of guy. I mean, um, I think, by the way, again, remember, Reagan was, one thing Reagan was very self-conscious about, though, was 
was trying to heal some of the wounds of Vietnam. And that's why, if you remember, they made a big deal out of a number of ceremonies where they were awarding medals of honor to, uh, to veterans. And I think a good thing, because frankly, the way we treated veterans after Vietnam was pretty shameful. And the, um, you know, the way in which that service was treated was pretty awful. I think one of, the, one of the good things in this war is whether or not people are in favor of this war or not, returning veterans get treated pretty well. And that's, that's a very good thing. That was not the case after Vietnam, and I think Reagan was going to very self-consciously do some things to fix that. And I think he also was, in, in connection with his view of the Cold War, trying to present an image of the United States that was strong and, and self-confident. But, but I, I, think, I really don't think that's a central issue. On uh, the question of the draft, it's a professional military. It's a very big military. Uh, it's a vol- I would say as much it's a volunteer military. I mean, we, we have, I don't know what the total numbers are now, people who have cycled through Iraq. Uh, some of you may be able to help me, but, you know, we're probably looking on the order of about half a million or something like that. Uh, and there will be more before this thing ends. You have National Guard units uh, from all over the country who are, who are being called up uh, and, who, and who are going, going over. There, there are a lot of people who are touched by this personally. I, I think it, it is true that it is a lot easier to fight this kind of war if you don't have a draft. And that's why traditionally uh, the only European power that I'm aware of that tried to fight this kind of war with a draft were the French, first in the 1880s in Indochina, big mistake, and then in Algeria also turned out a big mistake. Um, so it, it, is, it is easier... But I don't think these people aren't feckless. Uh, I mean, you may disagree with their judgment. You may think this was a stupid war. Uh, you may think that they didn't think things through. But, you know, all these people visit Walter Reed. All these people meet with families. I mean, I know one very, very senior person, I'm not going to... He would probably be very angry if I said it in public, who spends every Friday night with veterans were missing legs and arms and were blind and stuff like that. Um, so they are quite sensitive to the human, as sensitive as you can expect a politician to be to the human costs of this. From a political point of view, the absence of a draft makes a big difference. I would say that. John? Uh, yeah. Um, Richard Fennell, the political scientist, uh, hasn't studied uh, generals, but he studied politicians a lot. Mm-hmm. And he argues that they're basically like athletes. They have boundless energy, and they hate passionately to lose. Uh, generals or uh, military people may be similar to that. But one of the problems in wars is sometimes you have to cut their losses and get out. Um, World War I comes to mind. Um, Civil War might come to mind as well, in which the pol- neither the politicians nor the generals could figure out a way to get out. Mm-hmm. People who do have that character, somewhat at least, are business people in business. Henry Ford was trying to end World War One. Uh, but it may be that the best kind of uh, politicians also like to win uh, but uh, they also I mean business people like to win but they also reach a point where they cut their losses and get out and don't and, and uh, that's part of standard business practice and you don't get that necessarily with politicians and with uh, generals some some business people do you know there, there are plenty of businesses that cr- you know the, the great thing about the capitalist system is the, the, the business people who aren't willing to cut their losses end up you know, ruining their companies and their and their history. And there are plenty, there are plenty of examples. Right. There, 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 there are plenty of examples of that. I, I would also say, by the way, it's not clear to me. But politicians are absolutely right. Do have this uh, tremendous desire to win. Um, generals, I'm not so. Sh- generals obviously don't want to lose, uh, and they want to complete the job. But they are. I, I am not so sure that the way our selection systems work, that they are as nearly as competitive. In the, in the way the politicians are. Um, I mean, you and I were talking the other night about LBJ. Now, admittedly, he's, you know, pretty... He's really at the, the right end of the uh, bell-shaped curve on this one. But, I mean, this was just the most utterly competitive guy who always had to dominate and always had to win. Get very few generals who are really, I think, um, are really like that. You, you do, on the other hand, have plenty of politicians who are averse to major risks, and I think all politicians instinctively understand that war is a very risky, is a very very risky kind of business. Um, and then the other thing is, there are politicians and politicians. You know, the, if 
if and, and I mean, if we go beyond the United States, uh, you know, if if all politicians were like that, the French would have kept on fighting from North Africa in 1940, and the French political class was very much willing to cut their losses. Uh, you know, the British Conservative Party was pretty willing to cut its losses in 1940. Uh, it was only that madman Churchill, with some help from the labor benches, uh, who who kept them to it. Um, so I, I mean, I think that's that's basically true. And that, and it, but but I would also qualify it a lot. Anybody else? It's something makes me think 1:30 is the uh, witching hour. Well, I want to thank you very much, uh, Professor Collins. It's been a great talk. I want to thank you. I want to thank Gail again. And uh, it's uh, been nice to have a talk that I think bridges the disciplines of political science and history so nicely and both the policy world and the academy. So thank you very much. Uh, We're dismissed. I understand that Jeffrey's group will meet, Professor Parker's group, I mean, will meet uh, here at what time, Jeffrey? With a salute. With a salute shortly to have a... Students will meet with Professor Cohen soon. Thank you.